Doctor, I have time loops popping up all over the ship. We've just entered orbit of Earth five times. What is happening down there? Richard Howdy, dear. Hey, hey, hey. Steve, are you there? You in? Yeah, I'm Hey, here. hello. Hello, Steve. Uh, Steve, hello. Steve, we've got Andy, Andy, Steve. Hello, Andy. All right. I was worried. I, I didn't want to message in case you were putting baby to bed or anything like that, and I didn't want to uh, I got one down down at nap, and the other one is feeding on the couch. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll whisper the whole way through, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Um, hello, listeners. We've got someone coming in through the new device. Uh, we've just been talking to, uh, to Andy. We've only just really started the movie. Um, so we're going to come over to Steve. Steve, general thoughts on Trek first before we get into any conversations. Trek in general? Yeah. How how did you come into Trek? How did you discover it? Um, You know, uh, is it something that you even like? Uh, Yeah. So I have liked it uh, by default, I guess, because my best friend and podcast mate Jarman has been a huge fan of it for over a decade now. He was late to the game. I'm later to the game. Uh, And through various podcasting and doing reviews of things he likes, I've ended up watching all the Star Trek films, and we are doing reviews of original Star Trek episodes right now. Um, So I'm really getting my first full breath of exposure to it. Uh, So it's something I'm finding the nuance of and enjoying more and more as I get more of it within my, uh, my repertoire, so to speak. Excellent. I did enjoy the uh, play on nerds when you did uh, sort of all of the Star Trek movies uh, interplayed with all the Muppet movies, which was a fantastic overlay. I thought that was fantastic. And that, that is how Muppet Trek was born because exactly. we got our best responses from that series. And so we said, how can we just make this every week? And that's how we did it. Um, do you want to talk to the listeners about Muppet Trek? What exactly is Muppet Trek? Are we? So am I late or early? That's all right. No, sorry. Um, we were. We sort of started about half an hour. So don't worry. We're just gonna. It's a general conversation. So I'm just. Oh, okay, cool. I was like, man, I'm I'm late to the game. I feel <laughs> bad. Um. So sorry. What was Muppet Track? Uh, yeah. If we're at the plugging section, uh, yeah, we uh, do try to do weekly. It's been a little bit delayed because I just had a kid. Um, weekly episodes where we review uh, the same release episode of The Muppet Show as Star Trek. We do side-by-side comparisons. We try to find similarities. We transport characters from one to the other. Uh, and really, we just took the two things we love and are passionate about, and we're like, how can we make one show? And we just took, we just made them kiss. <laughs> I'm not it, sure if it works, but we made it It happen. really we does work. Especially at the end of every episode where you try and swap out the crews. Who would you transport from the Muppets yeah, right. to fill the Star Trek episode? And who from the Star Trek episode has to fill in from the Muppets? Um, it is a really good one, and I beg all my listeners to to go over to Muppet Trek and give it a listen. Um, although I imagine this show is probably stealing most of your I listeners. I also beg all your listeners <laughs> to come over to Muppet Trek and listen. <laughs> Coincidentally. Whatever engineering are doing, it seems to be working. Space time. The ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission? To observe Trek from outside to the Big Bang all the way to the end of the universe. To seek out every second and contemplate every eon. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. 
has ever done before. Okay, to, to fill you in where we are, uh, we've talked oh, yeah. about uh, first contact of how we first watched it. Um, okay. How did you first uh, come to first contact? So first contact came out in was it ninety six I believe ninety six yeah. Uh, so I was ten, um, and not anywhere Star Trek wasn't in my periphery. I knew it existed, but it wasn't anything I had any interest in. Um, so I probably rented this. Realistically, I went to a Blockbuster Video with my family and picked it up probably in ninety seven. Wow. Yeah, uh, exactly uh, the same here. Um, I was not uh, old enough to go and see it in cinemas. I'd seen all of the trailers and I was desperate to go and see it, but I completely missed out. Um, but uh, it's it's just one of those ones that I really wish I'd been a little bit older to see it actually in the cinemas at the time. But uh, that's fantastic. Blockbuster places it nice and squarely in the 90s. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, so uh, at the beginning of the movie, um, we're going to uh, we'll go back a bit, actually. I think tell you what, we'll go back into the timestamp. So we're going to start at 13 minutes, 17 seconds. And... Uh, We've got uh, Lily and Zephram Cochrane. Just in general terms, what did you feel about these two characters? Did you like them straight away? Did it take you a while to get to like them? I think, well, I think the, the way that they were intended was Lily you're supposed to connect with right away. Mm. She's the scared every person thrust into the, the starship, very much out of her element, um, versus Zephram, who you're kind of supposed to not like, mm. I think. And I think that's the way he's written. And then uh, Lily continues to be relatable and you get to discover the world through her eyes and Zephyr becomes more and more likable until the end you're rooting at him, uh, rooting for him. Uh, but no, I don't really like Zephyr, uh, but it's because I think he was designed that way at front. Nice. Interesting. I like that. Um, uh, we were just discussing that uh, the original intention was to have Zephyr played by Tom Hanks. Do you feel you would have uh, appreciated the character more had he been played by Tom Hanks? I don't know. Well, really... So I, I took, I did a little bit of research and looking up, and Zephyr Cochran is supposed to be like 33 or something <laughs> at the time that's going on, and uh, Cromwell, the guy who played him, was like 56 at the time this was filmed. Um, they later apparently went back and explained that it was because of radiation poisoning. Yeah, but yes. even even uh, that is thin. Is nuclear thin, fallout, it does horrors to the skin. It really does. Uh, Tom Hanks, I mean, just would have been lovable. <laughs> it would be cool to have him in the Star Trek universe somewhere. Um, um, Andy was saying, I don't know, maybe it would have been too goofy. <laughs> Andy was saying that it might have sort of taken you out of the movie. That perhaps uh, you would have seen Tom Hanks, you wouldn't have seen the character. You feel that might have been a, a risk. Um, well, let let me take a quick look. Let's see where Tom Hanks was in his career in '96, oh, okay. because I think that's going to be uh, the teller here. <laughs> Because there was a time where, you know, a lot of actors were comedic at first and later went very, true. very, very comedic. So 96, we're talking about, oh man, he has so many credits. Dear Lord. <laughs> I guess it is Tom Hanks. So 96 was That Thing You Do. This was, that would have been the year after Toy Story. <laughs> and, uh, bef like the year or two before Saving Private Ryan. Um, I don't know, maybe this would have been a fun transition from, like, funny, happy-go-lucky, that thing you do, Tom Hanks, to saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks. Maybe this was the step he would have needed. Ooh, 
interesting. Maybe there would have been an alternate timeline where uh, where Tom Hanks could have like transitioned straight away. Uh, we wouldn't have needed anything else. There would have been no Forrest Gump or anything, I guess. Well, what there would have been is after the success of Saving Private Ryan, HBO would have partnered with him to do a Zephyr Cochran show. Ooh. Another Trek show based off of the fact that Tom Hanks was so powerful at the time. That's the fair point, actually. That's the fair point. Um, I have to say that my favorite thing of Tom Hanks is actually Toy Story. That that, that is my favorite Tom Hanks, uh, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. So... uh, I don't know. It would have been very, very strange to uh, to see uh, to, to hear um, Woody um, in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> yeah, only if you close your eyes. Only close your eyes. Just, just hearing, um, you know, Woody. Uh, Woody basically being Buzz. Yeah, Woody uh, that would have been the that would have been the most bizarre twist. There's a Borg right. in my boot. Um, uh, but uh, from there, um, we have the Borg attacking the facility down in Montana. Um, and we had a scene with uh, Data and Picard as uh, they are down on the planet and they they find the rocket and they have this nice nice little scene where they're sort of talking about touching history I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that scene in particular Um, I've got a darn it my kid is yelling I've gone poo poo Uh, (laughs) I will be right back don't worry don't worry oh lord I remember those days. Oh, yes. Yeah, I can't wait for that to come as well. I've got all that all over again with Zachary. Oh, yeah. Here it comes. Uh, but we're, we're trying to uh, potty train him as we're um, as we're yeah. going into the summer, trying to sort of save some money on nappies more than anything else. Oh, so how, how old is he now? He's now two and a half. Two and a half. That's, yeah. yeah, I think it's about three that, that yeah. uh, Frenchie and Dom were, were pretty much going through that phase. Three, three and a half, that kind of time when they were... Fully done. Maybe that's late. I don't know, but no, um, no, I think that's about right. I think it was uh, it was good. For it's different for every. I think it's different for every child, really. It's when they show the interest. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean that makes such a difference. Mm-hmm. Two and a half already. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. My goodness. I haven't seen you very much. No, that's <laughs> I true. I haven't seen you guys very much. Uh, well, I've been stuck in this time bubble. You see, that's what it all right, is. Back that's what it is. I don't see it. That's all right. No worries. Um, we were just saying that uh, I've got to go through the exact same thing with my youngest son. Um, uh, he's going to be potty training soon, so I've got you know I'm going poo poo. Going to be coming out my ears. It's going to be all over. The place. You hope. Oh God. <laughs> I hope so. You hope it's not, Dad. I did something in the closet. <laughs> It's going to be everything, isn't it? Oh, it's going to be oh, yeah. a Jason, uh, Jackson Pollock all across my walls. Uh, that's all it's going to be. Just don't um, turn on a black light. <laughs> um, yes, Data of Picard, uh, talking about touching history and um, you know, uh, the idea that the, by able to see the rocket, it sort of changes your, your view on things. Did you have any thoughts on that particular scene? Well, I'm trying to think of something because Picard specifically says that he's seen it, I believe, in the Smithsonian. Yes. Does that sound right? Yes. So I'm trying to think of something that I could currently go see in the Smithsonian that I would want to touch. Mm. And probably nothing is the answer. <laughs> uh, it's also breakable. Um, I don't know. I cannot. Uh, for me, I think, like, what, what if I got to touch, like, an original Kermit yeah. puppet? Ooh. And what that would mean not only to connect with it, but to then have that memory of what it felt like and be able to recall that memory every time I see Kermit from that point forward. So I, I can get it. Yeah. Um, to, but to I think it's putting it in, in context to yourself. 
no I like that that's a great yeah great point great point um uh, as we're moving in we're gonna go into the the horror movie aspect of the Borg uh, mm-hmm. do you feel that they pulled it off correctly uh, in this movie do you feel that they were a threat or did it was there something sort of missing was it not scary enough um so I think so yes it was scary the Borg are some of my favorite fictional villains of all time in any show ever um I just love them. The concept, the resistance is futile. The drive, the push—it's so good, and and they're they're unwavering, which makes them that much scarier. Uh, I think that aspect really carried through here. I think that the the storyline that happens with Riker and Deanna and Zephram on the planet could have used more pressure from the Borg from a story point of view. Um, now, mind you, they had their drive was the timeline. We had 14 hours yeah. to get this thing done, but they were kind of blissfully unaware of what was going on. I think the storyline with them is that the pressure wasn't so much an external pressure, but more that more of an internal pressure. It was the trying to get um, Cochrane to accept that he had to go through and do what it was that he would have done anyway. And, you know, the point is, like, he's running away from it. He doesn't want to be this person that they believe him to be. And so I interpreted that you had two, as there are two different stories, you had two different kinds of of motive, two different kinds of battles taking place. One was the external battle of, of, a, of a villainous enemy, and one was an internal battle of accepting who you are and who you're going to be. Um, I totally agree with you, though, um, that it didn't feel like there was as much pressure deadline all he had to do was fix his ship and just get beyond the ship that was it maybe if there was more that he had to do or more that was going on maybe he was captured he didn't want to escape or something that made that more uh, you know have the higher stakes yeah and that's one of my biggest oh sorry complete no, 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 trick no, no, overall is is that um there's a in the a plot b plot even in the shows a lot of the A plot is what's the captain doing, and the B plot is like, I guess we got to catch up with everybody else. <laughs> um, and so I feel like the, the episodes I've enjoyed the most, what I watched so far, where the B plot drives the A plot. Yeah. And in this case, they were very, very separate. And I'm not sure if that that's was good for the movie because I do like this, and both halves of the, the this the story are very well told. Yeah. Um, but could it have been amped up anymore with just a little bit of pressure one way or the other? Who knows. Do you Different feel timeline. if they changed it where perhaps after the Borg ship is destroyed, the remaining Borg beam down? There's, there's no Borg Queen or anything like that, but it's now sort of a zombie movie in the woods and they have to get the ship prepared but also survive the onslaught. Do you feel that might have worked better? Yeah, like one or two drones got beamed down. They started mm. abducting people from the town. This is all happening quietly. Yeah. Instead of a, Maybe this is in place of the big attack at the beginning. Ooh, yes. Instead of the bombing... They, they blow the Jesus out of it, and then, oh, there was an energy surge from the Borg you know, sphere right before it exploded. Interesting. And then some beam to the ship, and some beam down, and then you get to play both angles. Yeah. Who knows? You, um, you still have the time deadline and the internal crisis with Zephyr and Cochran, but then you well, get yeah. to play the Borg a little heavier in the B-plot. Who knows? And because that way, there, there would be a much a bigger stakes and much more pressure on time, because, of course, they... Not only do they have to get Cochrane to accept all this, they've got to get him to accept all this whilst fighting off a, a bionic zombie attack and trying to convince him you've got to go back to basically the centre of the zombie hold to do this. It's like, well, I don't want to, and, you know, 
I can't. You know, you've had a lot more pressure on that point. So that would have worked quite nicely. But yeah, maybe think about the implications on the plot then, the big twist where the Borg Queen wants first contact to happen so that she can start taking over the Vulcans. Ooh. That same, like, there's so many angles to play that could have just Ooh. been brilliant. That could have worked really well, yeah. She Are needs... we going down the Borg Queen point now, or is that coming up later? Yep, oh, let's, let's go for this. Yeah, okay. Borg Queens. Does it make sense? <laughs> no. <laughs> from but, a but narrative I say that, point I say of view, that yes. from, I, I say that purely from a casual Trek observer. It, it, as I said before, with 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 zombies, the, the the thing that makes them terrifying is that there is no head to the beast. It's all, as you say, it's all drive, it's all push. It's it's just flood. You know, there's no head to the arrow. That's what makes them terrifying. You can't kill an enemy that has no head. Um, but as soon as you give, you know, you make the queen, then suddenly there's a head. Um, and even I didn't quite understand what she meant by the whole I I am the Borg I bring order to the chaos, but wasn't the Borg supposed to be the antithesis of the Federation, which is the order? They are the chaos to the Federation's order. So I didn't understand her role plot-wise, concept-wise, story-wise, except purely for this single movie, which took the Borg slightly out of my understanding of it. But again, as a casual casual viewer. Steve? I mean, it's all, it's anytime that something is given a face that hasn't had one before, it is to give, it's a scr- screenwriter's ability to give context to the audience. Um, and it is, think about all of those scenes. Everyone with Data and Picard or whatever, if they were just talking to open space with a voice, mm-hmm. all the line would have been there, all the dialogue would have been the same. Yeah. but the audience would have had nothing to focus on. Mm. And so from a scriptwriter's point of view, there had to be a face. Yes, to be a compelling villain, there had to be a face. And so the, the Borg Queen was created good or not. Yeah. yeah. Because otherwise, there's no negotiation, which is sort of what made the Borg brilliant before this point. There was, yeah. You're right, there was no face, there was no negotiation, there was no back and forth, really. In some of the Next Generation stuff there is, but... You know, yeah. um, but... It's like fighting a virus, you know. Yeah. It's not so interesting when you watch. Well, I, I personally don't find, you know, virus movies particularly interesting, because what are you fighting? Um, and in in board games, for example, I don't enjoy Pandemic because you're fighting a virus. I enjoy Ghost Stories because you're fighting Wu Feng. You know, you, know, you, right. when, you when you when you give the enemy a face, it's much more interesting. But if you were to do, a, you know, a virus movie and then give the virus a face, that would what what are you doing? <laughs> right, right. That makes no sense. The and personification so, of the yeah, virus. Yeah. Um, and but I mean, okay, if it was that, if it was purely um, a personification of the Borg in in some sort of projection for the sake of a particular plot point, then that would have made a bit more sense. And maybe that's what they they intended. Maybe um, the Borg Queen was within the plot created to negotiate with data because they need because they needed data to unlock the codes etc etc right so maybe that was it they created the queen in order to get to data but it didn't seem as though that's what they were saying in the that being said i mean i believe picard had some sort of line in there where he said you were always there in the background, with I, I think that he indicated that at least the concept of the queen, if not the physicalization, 
what was there when he was the cutest of Borg. That's worse, surely. I mean, it yeah. would make saying what you're saying. Totally get it. Absolutely get it. If the point of the Queen in this film, plot-wise, is you know from as in from the from the Borg's purpose and, mm-hmm. and, and strategy is to get to data, then the Borg Queen isn't really a Borg Queen as much as a Borg interpreter or a Borg face. Or the mouth a of sorrow. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's purely yeah. there in order. And maybe to that's relate. what she really is. But um, then they should have called her the Borg Queen. They should have called her the Borg Voice. And then maybe that would have been a better way of trying to get to data. I I speak for the Borg. I understand what they are, and I need you to help me with this to bring perfect peace. Rather than I am the Borg. I am everything. I've always been. It's like well, you're not really, are you? You haven't really, have you? And, and that I think just just that. Back to that point I was saying to you earlier, Dan. It's that terminology. It's knowing the the terms you're using and and what it is she's representing. I think that made a difference from what I've seen, from what I've heard, to very purist trekkers. Um, but also, even from a casual point of view, it definitely deteriorates from the dread of what the Borg is, um, because suddenly you can kill the Borg by killing the Queen, and suddenly yeah. they're not as terrifying anymore. And there is some argument for her from this film specifically to be made for that she is something different entirely. You know, when the Borg collapse, it's because their their what their body parts dissolve and the technology is remains. But when her ex- dissolves deep down at her core, she's not a half dissolved skull or anything. She is some sort of fully formed metal skull with a fully encased metal. She's not half and half. Uh, she no other Borg looks that way. So there is the argument that 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 in within this movie is somehow proof that she is some sort of separate entity mm-hmm. or she is some sort of original created wrapped, for a purpose wrapped in humanity yeah. she's yeah. just created for a purpose as opposed to it being integrated into her it's right just, yeah. it's a she, she's, she's not an assimilated um, life form she's, she's a creation of something the for a purpose. Yeah. right and that would have made much more sense if that was a bit more explicit but then again going back to your point you know uh, if you're a scriptwriter, you need to tell a story you need to get from oh, yeah. a to b and so you've got to cut corners in order to get to that point and that makes sense and you i understand that i get that but it just felt a little bit jarring when you've got such a wonderful terrifying villain and oh, yeah. you just undermine the very essence of that villain for the sake of plot um, and well, for the, the plot of a single movie, given that the Borg exists over shows, episodes, series, but for this one movie, we've had to completely change what the Borg are so that this film can work. It, it just felt a little bit jarring um, on my part, um, but you know, I mean, that's, that's a small price to pay for for otherwise. That's true. Yeah. Can, can, can I just um, go back before you joined us? Yeah. We were talking about the Doctor, uh, the AMH. Um, do you oh, yeah. Think- <laughs> You were saying that he did appear before this film? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, uh, Voyager is uh, already uh, in full swing at this oh, point. It so it uh, is out there, and it's happening at the same time. Um, and also at the same time as Deep Space Nine, where we've met the, the guy who programmed the Doctor, who just so happens to be uh, exactly the same and looks exactly the same as the right, Doctor. Right, of course. Um, so we've been introduced to uh, the Doctor who made him, and the Doctor, the hologram as well, and the idea of these emergency medical holograms. Given, given that it really fits, and and my most of my my Trek experience is actually through Voyager. I have to say that my absolute favourite Star Trek dynamic is the Doctor and Seven of Nine. Those two together for me have been the most enjoyable episodes 
the most enjoyable um, scenes, dialogue, the way they they don't either one of them represent humanity, but they both represent an attempt to understand humanity and explore it, exploit it, make sense of it, moralize it. They were brilliant together. And I think one of my very, very favorite scenes is when the doctor possesses Seven of Nine. <laughs> I loved it. Um, and in this film, I think my favourite line is actually the Doctor when he's trying to stall the Borg. And he says to them, according to Starfleet medical research, Borg implants can cause severe skin irritations. Perhaps you'd like an analgesic cream. <laughs> I just thought that was perfect, Doctor. I loved it. Any thoughts, Steve, on that? Uh, I mean, Robert Picardo specifically is just such a great actor. Uh, he is one of the good luck charms of one of my favourite directors, Joe Dante. Uh, who did The Howling and Gremlins and Gremlins 2, and Robert Picardo is in The Howling yes. and Gremlins 2 as one of his sort of uh, good luck charms, so to yeah. speak. And The uh, repertoire of people he carries with him. And for me, the first time I ever experienced him uh, wasn't Gremlins, because I was far too scared to watch that as a kid. Uh, <laughs> it was Inner Space. Uh, I loved him as okay. the cowboy. Okay, absolutely. Um, yes, the cowboy. Another, another Joe Dante. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. exactly. Um, so that's fantastic. This is this is great. I, I I'm loving you two being on because I'm going to sit back and just let you two talk. Cause this for is the record, <laughs> for the record, in Gremlins two, when yeah, the evil me. female gremlin puts on the wedding dress, does he actually kind of go with it, or is oh he, he just... definitely goes with it? That oh, that, def- that tormented me and gave me nightmares. <laughs> like she definitely gets wet after midnight. months after that. Honestly, I still have nightmares about that very. Soon I don't know if this is a family show, Dan. I'm just... look, uh, it's okay. Don't worry. The look in his face of almost like you know what you beat me down i said okay i'll go with this you're a gremlin but you know i'm horny what the what in in the deleted scenes for the 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 outtakes i guess probably the better uh there are at least two takes i believe robert Cardo really goes bigger uh in the end uh because in the he has kind of a smirk on his face but there are some where he's like starts nodding wildly and, and aggressively uh and I think at one point he even cracks up and says, like, it was too stupid even for me. Uh, something to that effect, if I remember correctly. I think part, part of the, uh, the the torment was actually not knowing what he was thinking. But now that I know what he's thinking, that's a whole different level of torment. Oh, there's definitely a, a slight smirk and nod. So he's definitely going with it. I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say. I don't know. Well, <laughs> let, let's move uh, from from uh, that to uh, another uncomfortable scene between Zephyr Cochran and Deanna Troy. Um, it, just talking about, I mean, with my sort of modern day ha- post hashtag Me Too world uh, eye on, um, the idea that she had to have some drinks with him and then she had to have uh, several shots of tequila just to keep his hands off her. Uh, any thoughts on this particular scene? Do you feel that this has aged well? It felt clumsy. It yes. felt like it could have been done better yeah. and, and not say more realistically. I mean, it's Star Trek. I mean, we all know what we're here for. <laughs> But, like, if if Zephram Cochran was that drunk and trying to get her drunk to hit on her, he wouldn't be across the bar dancing. He would be, like, up on her, making her uncomfortable. <laughs> and while she made reference to it, yeah. they obviously didn't want to show it, but that I think that would have been a better time for Riker to get introduced to Zephram. <laughs> Punching him in the face. <laughs> right. And then, and then once he's on the floor with a bloody lip... <laughs> Uh, that's when she goes, that is Zephyr Cochran. That would have been the cleaner introduction I like of that. him. 
instead they kind of made reference to what a bad scandalous guy is but they didn't show any of it but if they were going to go down that route it probably would have made a lot more sense even if they'd not introduced Cochran at until that very point yes and that would have so been overall that's the, the introduction to exactly. all of this you know we're looking for the guy who introduces us to space travel to introduce us to the Vulcans first contact this great hero who we all admire and Riker just punched him in the nose that's him seriously that's the guy <laughs> wow um that would have been a very interesting, much more, much more interesting, uh, much more humorous way of introducing the characters to us all. I think, right? Uh, because what did he really do before that? It was just him oh, getting drunk funny. and then him like running away from explosions. Yeah, he didn't need yeah. to be there. <laughs> and, and also, if um, we didn't know until that, I don't know within the Star Trek lore if we did know, but if we didn't actually know yet if Cochrane was a guy, then if we hadn't been introduced to Lily's name yet. The fact that she's there defending the ship, she there knowing everything about the ship, you know, we could have been thought, hold on, maybe is that Cochrane? That's why they're rescuing her, taking her up to the ship, protecting her. Oh no, is that guy? Right, and that would have maybe changed what you're thinking. I don't know, maybe that maybe that would have been pushing it too far. So since, but, since we're talking about uh, implications on that timeline specifically, yeah. um, I think that, that you bring up a very good point with Lily. Lily clearly played a big role. Yeah. in getting the phoenix up and running uh, additionally when they go down to look at the phoenix there are at least three dead guys in chairs like sitting at control panels and stuff yeah. presumably they were also a big part of getting the phoenix up and running and now they're dead the heads of the next space program and the pillars of starfleet these guys that were there for it they're just gone yeah. yes yeah so the only way the timeline isn't affected and this is how i think you might do it because zephyrin said that his motivations were purely uh, monetary yeah. And he says this out loud to Riker at one point. So maybe he got famous from the Phoenix and screwed over and left everyone else behind. <laughs> Basically, his Ed And so their deaths literally world. mean nothing because they weren't included in the story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great It's the point. only way we could get away from it. That's a great point. Uh, that, yep, yeah, that all comes into it. It's it, There's so much impact that is never mitigated. We we never get a line of dialogue saying, oh, these people, you know, they, they died only a few months later, maybe that doesn't matter or anything like that. You, you, you're never told that actually everything's going to be reset. You know, uh, by the end of this scene and by the end of the movie, the Enterprise goes back, yeah, there's triumphant music playing, but have we actually completely changed the timeline? Um, it's never well, it depends on what kind of time, depends on what kind of time travel we were talking about. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure if what you're saying is that... Um, those guys died, we don't know anything about them, and we should have known, and Picard and his team knew, but we're not introduced. Or is it, we, nobody ever knew about them, because as it happened, when Picard went back, they stopped becoming relevant and important, and for that very reason, we don't know anymore. We don't, we don't know within the history. So it depends on what kind of touch up you're talking true. about. Yeah. That's true. Um, because it could have been that they should have been a bigger part of it. They would have been. Cochrane would have had nothing. He was just a pilot. He would have had nothing really to do with it. But because the Borg went back and killed everybody, now Cochrane is the main figurehead. Hence, it's his statue. Everybody knows. That's true. So then the so, question is, is at the time the movie starts, are they living in the timeline that is already the result of the movie yes, that we're about to watch? but that contradicts the... <laughs> that contradicts uh... the, you see, the... The thing is, that is the time travel that you get when you're looking at um, determined time travel, where there's only one timeline, um, and you only ever have the result. And everything you do in the past will, will produce what you have in the present. 
Um, but that's not the time travel that you see with, for example, the time Star Trek movies, which gives you split timeline um, right. time travel, where you actually have parallels, which I find much more clumsy. They they allow you to do much much more. Well, yeah, but, you have the reset button. Yeah, because you can just Why? go wherever you want. But the problem with that is, well, I don't care about this Picard because there's an infinite number of other Picards I can worry about. <laughs> and and I find that that, for That's example, um, going in a completely different, completely different tangent, um, is the reason why I didn't like what they did with Endgame because that's what they ended up doing with that. And you can end up just doing, you can reset whatever you want and there are no real consequences. So I prefer the way they did it in this, if that's what they were doing. Um, yeah, we don't know the, 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 the scientists because the Borg killed them. That's why we don't know. We would have known them had the Borg not gone back. Because the fact that you've got like a timeline as it should have been mm. and a timeline how it was, both would have resulted in the Enterprise being able to go back. And that's the point. Both timelines have to end up with the same potential result so that this can play out and that's harder to do you've, you've got to have two possible timelines resulting in the, the, the time travel being possible what should have happened because if we hadn't gone back in time i should be able to think back in time and the time travel as it did happen because have now I've gone back in time i have to be able to go back in time so it's harder to do um but it, now we're I getting into Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure logic. <laughs> yeah, but how many times have we ever seen Tunnel being done properly? Um, I mean, uh, a handful. Uh, time Crimes, highly recommend. Best time, time travel crimes. film that has ever been made. It's in Spanish. It is the best time travel film that's ever been made. Time Crimes. I'm gonna look it up. I, I, Period. I watched, End of I, sentence. I, I watched. Um, what one was it? Um, I forgot. I forgot the name of it now. Um, it's one where they um, they they create a time travel device and they go oh, inside. Oh, like a box that they have to. Yeah. Spin. Um, and oh. then he sits in it. But is it? it are they, can I go back to when they first started the box up? It's not timer. Um, no, I've seen that one as well. But that time. Um, well, not not timer. Um, uh, it came out while I was working at Blockbuster. Oh, really? Oh, yes. There are a lot of movies that fit into that category. I'm like, oh, I remember that. Came Predestination out was a different one. That was um, not very good. I didn't like Predestination at all. Um, yeah, there are too many time travel movies not, now. It's not Timer, but it's very similar. Primer. To Primer. Primer. That's the bad There we go. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed Primer. It. And that was clever. That definitely had a time travel logic that worked. Um, it was terrifying how it could, how it played out, but it, it definitely worked as a time travel system. Time crimes very much fits into that same logic. Right. If you but like primary, you're going to like time crimes. You, you can't, in my opinion, anyway. You can't just use time travel as a as a plot device because that that is clumsy and it will never be an honest you know play out of what time travel can be you can't bring it in at the 11th hour and say we're going to solve everything with some time travel no you can't do that and if you're going to bring it in i mean crack it, like, the beginning was it, in 13 minutes they borg just invent time travel and they create temporal particles and the enterprise just follows them through and then they just replicate them at the end to go oh, that's a clumsy way of bringing time travel in, into anything that's just oh we just figured it out for the sake of the plot i don't know but we just figured it out 
is like the theme of Star Trek. <laughs> like just having gone through the first season, I think there are at least two or three episodes where they travel in time because they yes. just figured it out. Is it, isn't that the we, we just slingshot around much. the sun and we're going to time just travel? Figured out how to full seal. Spock <laughs> thought about it real hard for two minutes, and now we're gonna we're gonna do whatever I we want with time. Find that so, honest storytelling. I don't find that honest. So storytelling. In that regard, I'm like it's Star Trek. I just space magic is just part of it. <laughs> But, uh, you've you've just described this whole podcast. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. Space magic is just part of it. <laughs> space space magic is just space. part of it. That's, that's this is why you just bring in the guy with the, in the, the with, with his hat, and then he just that's it. He just it's a guy with a hat, and he's just come over with all his magic, and that's it. Space wizards all over again. <laughs> there are no rules. The rules are what I thought about Zephyr Cochran and the long term effect on his psyche. Yes, like. The rest of his life, he would doubt whether he could have done it on his own. Yeah. But then, like, from what your argument, he he would never have in the first place because he wasn't even a scientist. The others were the scientists, and potentially anyway. So he would have yeah. known that from the outset. And anything, he's got the survivor's guilt. They died, I didn't, and I'm the dick who just wanted to hire an eye with dicky women. So, in, uh, if anything, to be honest with you, your point about the stakes for him, those really are the stakes. Why have yeah. we not explored his psychological um, stability in this? Talking about the, his friends who are dead, he's got the guilt. He never really had the knowledge. All of those sides of it, I mean, they show him running off into the woods and having a drink. That's it. Yeah. Really, there should be a lot more psychologically going on for him, breaking down terror, fear, tears, because that's really what would have gone on. Oh, by the way, time travel exists, and we're spacemen from the future. Um, <laughs> that's the smallest part of what should be going on in his head. Yeah. Out of curiosity, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, you carry on. No, yeah. you said it. Yeah. Out of curiosity, is this the first time in all of Star Trek that somebody says you're astronauts on some kind of Star Trek? It is indeed. It yes. is the one and only time someone says Not Star Trek. A Q uh, does say in one other episode, it's time for you to end your trek through the stars, but that is the only time someone says Star Trek in that order. In that I order. Nods yeah. to that. That was awesome. For, following on from this conversation then, um, let's, let's jump ahead a bit to the statue. Talking about the statue and uh, Zephyr <laughs> Cochran's legacy, you told him about the statue. And... Um, Living in the times we're at at the moment, with uh, Black Lives Matter uh, has happened a fair few weeks uh, ago from when we're recording this podcast, talking about tearing down statues and sort of rewriting your legacy, this whole film felt like it had a whole new message or a a whole new dimension for me watching it again, Hmm. thinking about, you know, how do we rewrite history? How do we educate people in what really was uh, our history, not necessarily what we want to promote? Any thoughts on this, on rewriting our history and legacy? I'll let you start with this one, given this is actually <laughs> more in your, you know, in your backyard compared yeah. to ours. Um, so as far as history and legacy, I don't know. So from what we see of Zephyr Cochran, like what we actually see in this movie, and you do get a couple glimpses of him throughout the shows and other films, or maybe no films, but other shows down the line. Uh, but like in this one, he's a womanizer and a drunk. And he would definitely get caught up in the Me Too movement. I can guarantee it. Um, and so, yeah, maybe his statue would eventually be torn down. Do you feel he doesn't like the idea of having a statue because in his history, that was only 40 years ago that they were tearing them down? 
That's true. And they've already and they mentioned going through a World War Three and who knows what kind of upheaval is that they mentioned most of the major cities had been destroyed. And that's where made these major monuments and statues are typically built. And also, again, going back to that survivor's guilt, why is it my statue? Mm. Oh, yeah. Why is so it my I, 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 I was part of the team, but I was just a guy dumb enough to fly the thing. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm the womanizer. I'm the drunk. I'm the crazy one. I expect to die during this. They're the ones who actually knew what they were talking Dude, about. Dude, what if he was the expendable one? Right. Wow. Right, a different okay. angle on the whole film. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very different angle on his character and what he's going through, as you pointed out, the psychological trauma that he's going to be facing. Why is it his statue that, that they're going to be putting up? So maybe that maybe that was the drive that the B plot needed. It wasn't the Borg, but we needed to get deeper into Ze- into Zephyr yeah. Cochran and, and, and his that mental part. psyche. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I look. I think anyone who studies history properly knows that history is written by people who have an agenda and a purpose and that's that's a given i think you, you can't study history without without first accepting that as a reality and because of that you study history with you know with with a certain degree of not skepticism but a certain degree of pause and it well you know what it says this but let's account for exaggeration for agenda for spin for all those different things and we all know that nobody's too naive to know that's what's going on uh, i think i remember once learning that there's actually a bit of uh, something i think henry the chancellor once wrote um in a letter somewhere and it's one of the earliest examples of political spin that we can actually oh. see and that's henry the eighth and that's like 15th 16th centuries so um we know that and so for anybody to now just come up and say we don't like this statue because this guy was actually so-and-so because at the time this was the politics of well were you so naive before that you thought this guy was like Cochrane, like some sort of angelic saintly figure who only saw this future as we now see it i mean who's that naive i mean surely- well, i mean i think the direct parallel here is christopher columbus you know yeah. this pioneer who at the end of the day was a profiteer yeah. Looking for money, riches, and fame, uh, who did, who ended up doing a bunch of terrible things to indigenous peoples very far away. Who knows if that is supposed to be Starfleet or not. Um, and realistically, you know, when me growing up in school, Christopher Columbus, especially as an American, sweet Jesus, um, <laughs> you know, glorified, glorified like crazy. It wasn't, and it really hasn't been until the last 30, 40 years that the atrocities that he enacted and enabled have really come to light and come become more a part of just knowledge that is available. Um, so maybe that's it. Maybe for the first 30 or 40 years after Zephyr and Cochran's major flight, he is the hero. But then after he dies, that's when they start finding the journals and people start coming out of the woodworks with the memoirs. Yeah, but, but as we said before, you know, the, the idea about, you know, when you build a statue of somebody, they're probably an idiot or probably a, you know, Isaiah womanizer or whatever, a profiteer. What is the purpose of the statue? Is the purpose of the statue to sanctify the man or the woman? Or is the purpose of the statue to glorify an ideal, a vision, uh, a current set of circumstances that were begun with this person? Um, Columbus you know we don't pray to him i mean christopher columbus was the guy who found the new world 
and you are living in the results of that first step. So Christopher Columbus is the beginning of that big journey. It's not him, it's the first step of the journey that you're commemorating. I don't know, yeah. I, I, I can't speak for all of American people and history. And history. I'll do that, don't worry. <laughs> I'll let you do that. But that, that's certainly how I see it. I mean, I don't, I don't go into a... Um, uh, you know, into a museum and look at busts and look, go down Parliament to look at statues to worship the figures. You go there to see footsteps and stepping stones in a process of history that's led to now. That that's what I see. And so, is isn't it a little bit dishonest? Not dishonest, but maybe a little bit futile. So we're going to tear a statue now down now because the guy was an idiot. Well, I'm sorry, who cares if the guy was an idiot? I mean. That's not the point, the point of the statue. The point of the statue is to say something bigger than that. Maybe, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a historian. I'm, uh, you know. Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that is really what the Black Lives Matter movement is getting at, is that these statues are not the men that they were. It's the representation of, you know, long-term ingrained hatred and segregation in the South. You're right, it, it's not who these men were. It is a time they represented and a time that Unfortunately, a lot of people are still trying to glorify in the United States. So I agree with that. And in context of the film, I think it very much speaks to your idea of it's not the, the statue of him, but the statue of what he represents. Jordy even speaks to that. Mm. Right here, you're standing and you're holding your hand up and you're kind of looking to the stars, mm. reaching out your hand. Clearly, it represents something more to Jordy than just a statue of Zephyr Cochran. It represents the, the desire, that first step out into space. Absolutely. It, it would have been nice, actually, possibly even to bring in a little bit of what they do in, in Firefly, where we actually see the statue of, of Jane, and then we, we know <laughs> Jane as, as he is, and then his conversation with Mal at the end. And maybe it would have been nice to actually have one of the side characters now suddenly disillusioned by Cochran. And maybe somebody like Riker, who who very much plays the the balance in in you know reason, history, seeing the bigger picture. He's very much the balanced character in this. Almost saying it's okay. It was never about him. It was well, about want, us. If you want out. to throw a hero worship character at him, um, that one guy. He's a regular from TNG. I just can't remember him for life. But he was really excited about the warp coil thing. Yes, it's a regular. Want to show him. Reg Barkley, uh, Reginald Barkley, he's okay. uh, the neurotic character from TNG. Assign him to Cochrane and let him be yes. the, the, the characterization of excited childhood hero worship that is stripped through the remainder of the film. That would have been the way to do it. And, and he discovers Cochrane drunk in bed with somebody, you know, just like, this is the guy I worshipped growing up? Like, what's going on? And then Riker has to bring him back and and, and not normalise him, but but it's okay. You know, that was never the point. Right. But then on the flip side, Cochrane, these people didn't worship you. They worship what you're about to do. So it's not about you. It's never been about you. It's been about humanity. And you're the poster boy of that. You've got to accept it. And and it's like bringing those two extremes together. That would have been an interesting way of Yeah, and it ends with a heartfelt scene with the neurotic engineer crying <laughs> about how broken his hero is and Zephyrin suddenly realizing how important he is to the world. Yeah, yeah that could have been a nice way to twist yeah. it. Rather than just be... Because, I mean, 
the, the rational argument doesn't convince quite so much as the emotional argument. So maybe actually showing him, look at what people, not seeing you, but seeing what you're going to represent. Yeah. And then that could have been maybe something, and, and maybe even, Crikey, you could take this into a, in a whole other level of drama. Maybe Cochrane's brother or son or nephew was killed by the Borg, and now he sees in that engineer a reflection of what he's lost and thinking, wow, you know, okay. people needed that. They didn't need me. They needed somebody to step in those shoes. Okay, I'll do it. You know, so something like that. You might say, uh, don't just try and be a great man. Just be a man and let history make its own. <laughs> you could right. say that. You could say that. <laughs> that sounds like a good line to put in a movie somewhere. I don't know it does why. Sound like yeah. A good line, yeah. yeah. Is the implication here that he got his best quote from someone else? That's yeah. true. Because if so, that creates a really terrible time loop situation. <laughs> We've got a bootstrap paradox. It's just going to keep uh, looping on yeah. itself. He has He'll to go back. He'll forget that. He was drunk when Riker said it. He'll forget that. He'll oh, it's true. Himself. He could wake up and it's like incepted into his mind. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of like the idea that uh, there are still memes uh, uh, all the way here in the future that people are just quoting uh, endlessly uh, all of the, uh, the famous history figures. Um, we're going to jump back a bit. And we're going to go through one of my personal favourite scenes. Um, we're going to go to Picard and Lily and the holodeck, Moby, the Moby Dick conversation. Oh, oh we, okay. Actually, no. Let's go that, back. That's, let's go that's, back. That's really forward, though. There's a lot before that. There point. is a lot more before that. But I'm just going to jump back just to this this particular scene, thinking again about you know legacy and how you act and sort of bringing it into the conversation we just had. Um, living up to a better ideal of yourself. Uh, the idea that maybe you shouldn't give in to uh, revenge and lower uh, lower parts of your persona- personality. Um, any thoughts on this particular scene of the Moby Dick scene, as it is? I th- yes. Sorry. Do you want to go? Steve, Talk do you want to go? Talk now. Yeah. Go. Andy, if you want to go first. Yeah, yeah, Someone yeah. speak. I don't yeah. care. Um, <laughs> Yes and no. There's almost sort of like two, like a, a two sides of a coin here because, of course, with Cochrane, we're trying to say, look, it, it's okay. You don't need to be this visionary idealist. You just need to do the job and let history figure that out for itself. But with Picard, you've got to be the idealist and stop being human. So we want Cochrane to be the human and not be the idealist. We need Picard to be the idealist and not be the human because Picard is human he wants to fight the Borg he wants to do that job but we're saying oh you can't do that Cochrane can be human but you can't and that felt a little bit harsh on on Picard given what we know of him I also dislike it when in in any film representation you've got this moral moral quandary of like what do we do do we fight to the end or do we just accept defeat and sacrifice and 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 leave it be and this fighting between characters over it fine i'll do it i'll do the hardest thing and five minutes later oh no i've deactivated self-destruct now it doesn't have it doesn't matter anymore it's like what all that moral conflict that built and built and built and data just cancels it it's like oh for goodness sake it's, it's like it's all about following through we see this a lot with doctor who loads of times and with other things as well is when you build up tension and stakes and we see this in Marvel loads when you build the stakes and you finally do the hardest thing and then five minutes later it's all just kind of reset 
I was like, well, I just don't believe in the stakes anymore, you know? You know, <laughs> when the doctor's assistants die and then bam, they're back again. It's like, what, what, what? It's like, well, I don't really care now. I'm, I'm never going to feel the stakes anymore. And then, for example, in Marvel, like, you know, when, when heroes sacrifice themselves, the next movie they brought back again, it's like, I just don't really care now. <laughs> you know? and, and that's the problem is, is you can't play with people's emotions with, with this. If, if you're going to make this, you know, there, there's a price, there's a sacrifice, there, there's something that's got to be done and you've done it and you've you've got to follow through. You know, if it means losing the Enterprise and everyone's stranded on Earth, that's it. I mean, I quite like that, though, again, they did reset it, but I think you both know this much better than I do. With, um, was it Spock's sacrifice uh, in Wrath of Khan you know that did feel quite big and they didn't just undo it in five minutes later there, there was the whole bringing him back and the whole story with that right. again you've got it with Death of Superman you know against uh, um, was it um, Doomsday. Well, Doomsday Doomsday there we go. And, and then there's that whole story to bring him back again <laughs> As, as long as the journey back isn't a reset, but something that's believable, something that's arduous, that's actually a journey into Hades to recover the soul, it can't just be, yes, I'm just going to undo it now because, you know, whatever. It's like, well, that really reduces the currency. And, and I, I did feel that a little bit in this, um, though obviously not quite to the extent of like bringing back the dead, but I, I certainly felt that. Um, so my my take on the scene, and and I only have this take off the top of my head because we had to look at this very heavily for the the podcast we reviewed it, um, is that this scene represents Jean Luc recognizing that the Borg was right. And let me explain. There throughout the movie are brought up uh, that Jean Luc is the only one that understands the Borg. He's the only one that knows how to fight them. He's the only one that knows what what that's been through assimilation. He's the only one. That, that knows how to hit him where they hurt. Um, and that he's got this deep understanding. And I think that he comes to a true understanding of the Borg and that the Borg want to assimilate and they want to cut out the violence and the war. The Borg multiple times throughout the show, and I think even the Queen in this make reference to, to humanity's messiness, effectively. And he, he recognizes that, that it's his human warlike tendencies that are driving him to vengeance that are driving him and only by recognizing that the Borg was right can he can he step away right that was, only right. by that, that they were right that humans are messy and that that humans have these violent tendencies mm-hmm. and that 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 they need to be cut out and I think that in his ultimate alignment with the Borg he recognized that they were right and he has to give it up I find it just like the Borg that, the solution is he has to cut it out it's um, odd that it's Lily that uh, makes him realize that when she's the one that's shooting at him in the beginning of the film. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and then later yells at him for using excessive violence against Borgs and all that. Yeah. All yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got him. Yeah. Yes, go well, yeah, go back to that scene as well. You know. So um, I, I think that what it, re- what it represents is the ultimate alignment between Picard and the Borg and him truly understanding that. That makes him realize that they're right, that it is his human warlike, messy tendencies that are driving him to the endangerment of his crew. Interesting. I don't know. I, 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 I did like feel that. that the the fight with the Borg on the ship seemed almost completely pointless. 
you know, they were fighting them on deck 16, on deck 15, on, on and every every now and then that the one guy comes back a bit more bloodied. It's like, oh, yeah. we're losers. It's like, well, you're telling me this is a hard fight. He's also but, sweatier. Yeah, but from what I'm, what I'm seeing, this really doesn't need to be a difficult fight. You, you know, you can punch them and they, they break. You know, so either you just do not know how to fight anymore or... You, the, the plot requires us to believe it's hard. So on, really on that point, I, I absolutely agree. There's a, uh, a scene that I think was actually in the previews where all the Borg are in the dark and you see their lasers light oh, up and suddenly awesome there's all of them. And, and it really, the dread just builds. Yeah. But what is, what precedes that is Starfleet officers opening a choke point and literally running into a choke point yeah. <laughs> to go face the Borg. Like, already tactical errors have been made in this entire yeah. setup. Uh, again, this goes, this, goes, this goes back almost uh, to the Asgard in Stargate. Like, they've forgotten how to actually wage war. So no wonder the Borg are ripping them apart, because yeah, they've got no idea how to fight these guys. All they need to do is just go down to Earth and ask Lily to get her team together, bring a few a few guns up, and they'll just be done with it. They'll sort them out in no time. I mean, chuck a couple of grenades. Um, uh, can I ask, what is the deal with Borgs in space? Because I thought they were half organic. So shouldn't they react to space similarly to the way the humans do? Why are they walking around on spaceships? Well, yeah, let's let's talk about the deflector scene, the the action set piece, I guess, of the movie. Because that doesn't make sense. I mean, let's 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 just go alien on this. Open the airlock and suck them out. You know, I mean, that's true. That never stops working. <laughs> I mean, that's always a good plan. Surely. We don't see a lot of things blown out of airlocks, though, throughout Star Trek, I don't think. No. I, like, I'm thinking of the show thus far, and that's never been the solution. No. They don't even need airlocks. All they do is, like, deactivate a force field around a single window. And then suddenly that's it. From, oh, I was like, can we control the windows? Yeah. Let's just control, let's just undo these windows and just bite, bite of the Borg, and it's just all the kind of like fixed. Let's close the windows again, and we'll just go in and just... It's fine. Uh, before we talk about that scene, though, can I just mention another one of my favourite um, bits of dialogue in the in the film? Uh, when they're approaching the Borg for the first time, Picard to Data, perhaps you should deactivate your emotion ship. Data, done. Picard, Data, sometimes I envy you. <laughs> I, I did like that a lot. Uh, well, that's and, funny because the, um, the emotion ship uh, was my absolute least favourite bit of Generations. Ooh, interesting. I so the hated movie. the emotion ship bit mostly because due to inconsistency more than anything uh, i thought it was such a poor plot device that was used as such a crutch in that film <laughs> i hated it i hated it so much i'm not a fan of that but but again it's all part of the idea of trying to get data to learn things for the sake of the audience isn't it so that we learn yeah. things as data learns them absolutely there are ways and ways of doing it and maybe they they, they push that button a little bit too far but yeah i mean um um for TNG viewers, the, the emotion ship had already existed. It was already in certain episodes prior. It was the first foray into like a, an ongoing story arc for for Data um, in, in a in a show that was still doing you know uh, the standalone episodes. They weren't really doing a long arc story, but Data's emotion ship had been introduced about two seasons earlier. And yes, they brought it back for the movies. I think just to sort of you know. Uh, make it easier for the uh, the Klingons to abduct the Forge, and again they brought it into this, but they've just decided let's just give it, and he can just switch it off now. That's fine. We've added a switch. That's fine. Um, but no, I, I watching that, I, I did like the idea that uh, Data can somehow you know um, can 
control his emotions mm. uh, far more easier. I wish. Uh, I until the Borg Queen turns it on again. And can I just say, for the record, the Android sex scene was incredibly uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> what version yeah. were you watching? Uh, just, uh... <laughs> well, you talked earlier about the Borg switching tactics, and you're absolutely right. It's, <laughs> up, up until this point, it's dominate, dominate, dominate. And this time they're like, let's try seduce, huh? <laughs> Guys, let's try seduce. Yeah, let's try seduce. We're Star Trek writers. We have a lot of experience writing sexy seduction scenes. We should try it out, guys. Anyone? (laughs) You've gone for Borgs. You've gone for a certain style, and it's what you think is a perfect mix between uh, synthetic and and, and organic. That does not fit well with the seduction model. Take some lessons from the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. They got it. Okay, they understood how to create the <laughs> synthetic, organic, seductive look. Okay. Not the Borg. <laughs> that is not going to work. Um, you don't yeah, like KY I, jelly and, and tubes in the head? It's not, your, did not, it's not your, no. your thing? No. Mostly okay. just too pale for me. <laughs> so a suntan, maybe you'd be okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That's so assimilate enough. some sort of tan planet. <laughs> Um, uh, where are we? Yes, uh, we were looked, we were doing the deflector scene. Do you feel that that worked as an action set piece, there, or do you feel there wasn't really much tension there? Badly, badly. Yeah. Badly. <laughs> hey, that's a great that's consensus consensus there. And when Worf felt like such a throwaway in the scene, yes. you know, we hear about the battle prowess of the Klingons repeatedly. You know, that's it's their culture. It's their whole culture. So for him to not take on at least three or four of them... Yeah. With a sword that seems to be very effective as well. Right, right, right. So, yes, sure, have his suit get cut and him struggle, but let him take apart three of them first. <laughs> you know, raise the stakes that way. There was danger. Oh, but they did finally get him. Yes. Yeah. This seemed you know like a, like, like a clumsy win. mistake. The good guys are going to win. You know that when you go into the into the movie. But you've got to be the stakes. You've got to feel it. I didn't feel it. Oh no, Hawk dies. Well, you know, <laughs> he lasted longer than most yeah. <laughs> most of characters. But I mean, that wasn't really a surprise. Yeah. Um, it was more like, oh, right, at this point, that's when it happens. Okay. Um, it, it was. It didn't feel like like a scary moment, a tense moment. It was all slow mo. Because they were doing this in space, and it's like really just pushing some buttons, moving some cards around, turning a big some thing. Magnets. Just, Everything's color coded real nice yeah, in space. It, it didn't feel like the kind of action set piece you want in, in this well, kind of. I think that would have been the opportunity to kill a major character. Yeah. You want to build tension? You're right. Don't send Hawk. Send someone we know out with them, and only to come back. Maybe this should have been Worf's send-off. Mind you, he was in Deep Space Nine, I believe, at the time, so I don't think that was an option um, from a from a storyline point of view. But yeah, make the make Worf die taking on five of these guys in space. Yeah. And his last thing is him blowing up his feet, so he shoots all of them away from the captain. But but this is the point, isn't it? I mean, this is the thing with with, with this kind of show production direction. You never want to kill off a character because you've got the currency. You're printing money as long as they're in the show. As soon as you actually commit and get rid of one, well, you've lost all the fans of that character because you, you're planning another couple of seasons, a couple of movies. You don't want to, you know, remove a source of income, and that's the problem. Is because of that, because of that, you, you don't you want to kill off 
disposable characters. You know, and, and that's and that's very much a last ten years mentality, I think, that has come about, especially with the the birth of the Marvel films, where people are literally signing on for seven to nine film contracts. And you, you know they're going to be back. You know. Yeah, you know they're going to be back. But you think of um, you know Wrath of Khan. You mentioned earlier with Spock. You know that was Nimoy wanted to quit. He wasn't coming back. So that was his send-off, and it was great, and they used it to make a brilliantly impactful moment that still resonates with fans to this day. If anything, and I talked about this when we reviewed Into, Into Darkness, the one with Nukon, is that yes. right? Yes, yeah. Into Darkness. I liked um, how they that did that. The end was, a, oh, it was a throwaway. It was such a cop-out bullshit throwaway. I liked um, it. No, it's, to, to, to take such an iconic scene and reconnect the characters, and I and I as a, as a fan was a sucker seeing that movie. I was like, oh my god, they're killing Kirk. This is brilliant. They're setting it up so the next film is, is them finding a way to bring Kirk back. How genius is that? You get to carry over story arcs and themes but create something totally new. And then they erased it with magic blood. <laughs> You want to talk about the longevity of a franchise? Wouldn't you have rather seen the search for Kirk than that third piece of crap they put out? <laughs> and had another huge impactful so death to, to remember <laughs> yeah. from a Star Trek film? I, I, I can't disagree with you because you, yeah. you're, you're not wrong at all. <laughs> anything. But this is the point. This is the very point. It's when produ- you know, production companies are looking at these as money-making enterprises and they're not looking at them as actual works of, of passion and love and story and plot and and what would really happen be, and being honest with the characters as well i want to remember um a, a very old not very good movie it was a very old movie with richard burton um called the medusa touch and basically like the omen but he is a guy and he looks at somebody and then they die in some bizarre way anyway and in, in this in the film this guy richard burton plays is actually a writer and he writes some really offensive literature and his editor tells him off for us, you can't write this stuff. And he goes, I have no control over what my character says. And that's always resonated with me as a, as a concept that the, the author doesn't fully control the character. And again, I'm, I was I was very fortunate, Danny, you know this, um, to have met Bernard Cornwall, who is my all-time favourite writer. Um, and he said in, um, in an interview, I'm not sure if it was actually the one that I was actually at, but um, he said that he was surprised by Richard Sharp's decision to retire in Normandy. And it's like, what do you mean? You, you wrote the story. And, he goes, and in his mind, Sharp would always have retired in someone like Derbyshire. But he ended up meeting a, a, a French woman in Normandy, marrying her and settling there. And he was surprised at the decision that Sharp made, even though he wrote it. And I always felt that was an incredibly honest bit of writing because as a writer, you've got to give a certain degree of freedom to what your character would do in a situation. Now, what you're saying, what would Worf have done in that situation? He would have gone for the Borg, for all of them, blown them up, probably himself included. And that would have been an honest send off for that character, as Spock would have died for everybody in yeah. Rathacan. That is honesty. But what happens is when you give the control to the production team who are looking at money-making opportunities, they do not write an honest story and an honest character um, because it's just bad for business. But it's good for art, but it's bad for business. Because and, think about the impact this movie would have had if that speech that that, that uh, Picard gives to Worf as his apology. Yeah. You know. 
think about how much more impactful that had been if he had been if that had been the end of the film when they're loading him into a tube for some reason like they did with Spock. Because <laughs> they off. still load photon torpedoes into tubes. <laughs> and 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 he's saying that address ending with like you are the bravest man I've ever known at his funeral. Mm. Think Ooh. think about the impact that that could have had on an audience. And you're yeah. right, they didn't do it because they're thinking about the next Star Trek film. Yeah. But man, so much good storytelling is passed up for that sake. I totally yeah, agree. Absolutely. But then, then then what you've got is you've got um, a series and a franchise that just carries on. And it just carries on. And you get you get fans and you lose fans and then it becomes this and controversial and that and there's a debate that goes on fine. Or you create something which becomes iconic in itself. Yeah. And it becomes the focal point, not just another chapter in a, in a an ongoing limping story, but it becomes the set of the movie where Wolf died. This is the movie where uh, I, don't, I don't know um, something major happened and some you know some guy was was killed or the uh, this is the episode where. Um, the Enterprise was lost, and all of the crew were stranded, and that was it. They had no more adventures for them. It's something yeah. that would make it. I think that was the movie where this happened, rather than another. Step Is that the one with the Borg? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, um, as opposed no, to the second one where the two questions are: Is that the one with Khan, or is that the one where Spock died? Right. Yeah. Exactly. What would um, that second question be for this film? Right. Is, one is that the one, one where Picard shot a Tommy gun? Is that the one where Data has sex with the Borg Queen? Is it he seduced <laughs> by the Borg? No. Uh, yeah. It's not really the question you want to be asking when you're trying to pinpoint <laughs> this movie, isn't it? Right. I, I'm conscious of time, and I don't want to take up too much time uh, for you guys. So I'm going to move to uh, the uh, the launch scene. Uh, we're going to move on to to that point. Um, the the final countdown obviously uh, uh, Riker has talked uh, Zepp from Cochrane into uh, doing the launch using his own words against him um, did you like the comedy or was it too cheesy uh, especially when he plays the music because it has to take off with the music playing I love that totally love that I'll be honest I was a sucker for that scene right there I thought that, you know if you're going to be do, if you're like a test pilot if you're um, a high speed driver if, if you're doing something and your life is constantly about being in danger which I'm going to assume that's why Cochran was doing this because he was probably some sort of not thrill seeker but somebody on the front lines probably during the war if he was in his 30s in this story then he would have been in his 20s during the, during the war so he probably was one of these conscripted you know, you're going to die in this war, mate. Um, okay. He would have had his lucky charms. He would have had his rituals. And they would have meant everything to him. And he could not fly without his bit of music playing because it would have been bad luck. Yeah, absolutely. Totally with that. Totally got that. Steve? Um, it felt a, a little hokey. I'm not going to lie. But I think that that leads back to something we sort of all agree on, that maybe Cochrane's turn wasn't hard enough throughout the B-plot. And maybe it would have felt more, more I'm thinking about it, it would have felt more appropriate that he was still who he was at the end, despite going through this massive change. But because I didn't feel that change, maybe it didn't, it didn't feel good going back the way it should have. That's, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. I like that. I, like that. Uh, I, think we, I think we can definitely agree that, uh, that uh, Cochrane's story arc was a little bit weak. It was a bit weak. It was a bit, a bit, um, 
flat. Could have done with a lot more. Um, Let's talk about some other historical stuff real quick, because Cochran goes up, he's riding this. There's two other seats in there, right? Yeah. Mm. Jordy and Riker ride, right? Was supposed Presumably, to be those were for the second and third people that Died. went into warp. Or was, um, was Lily right. supposed to be in there? Maybe Lily right. was supposed Lily to be was... with him? Um, and then the question is, you know, did they install those seats just for Riker and Jordy? And if so, did they take them out afterwards? Presumably, they <laughs> were like, for the... To uh, cover up historically? They, they were for the guys that you mentioned died when the Borg attacked, aren't they? Right. And now they're no longer the second and third guys. No. So, so for the rest of eternity, Cochrane has to maintain that... he's the only one. That, yeah, that the other two seats were empty. <laughs> That's perfect that yeah it could completely change our timeline that's brilliant despite um, the fact that he would have to lie about it forever because you know this would this experiment would be studied and torn apart you know this is the the warp drive is what made the future happen so like the weight of how much was in the cockpit would have had to be accounted for that's a fair point yeah that's very true so, that's like so conspiracy forever. theories for centuries like what happened to seats two and three <laughs> oh, they were filled with 400 pounds of potatoes. Yeah. Why do you take 400 pounds of potatoes? It's a, shut up! I did warp drive. <laughs> Can I say I've got a massive issue with space travel in in Trek movies? Go for it. And in, and in Star Wars movies. I'm just gonna go and make a, a pot of coffee. Uh, I'll be back in about three hours. Is that all right? Yeah. Absolutely. I watched um, a great um, Shadowversity video on space travel, and he was trying to figure out what would be the most effective way of creating a, a spaceship because of course he was rev- he was looking at star trek sorry star wars um x-wings etc etc and he made a very important very fair point actually observation that in star trek sorry in star wars I keep confused, in star wars spaceships fly like airplanes yeah okay they, they turn like planes they slow down like planes they, they move like airplanes and of course that's bad that's bad science okay we, we all know that in the Disney Star Wars movies, I mean, they've got this stupid chase scene where, you know, we can't go faster than that ship, even though you you can just jump ahead in hyperspace. But really, again, it, it's the same thing. We Really bad science when looking at spaceships. Uh, we had the same kind of thing also in Firefly, actually. If you remember um, the episode, I think it was uh, the first... I think it was the first episode. The um, Where you've got... Serenity is flying, and then the Reavers kind of cross their path. So like they're flying at thousands of miles per hour. <laughs> you know, it's not going to turn like that. Bad science when it comes to spatial. The Expanse, I think, did a fantastic job on showing space travel because they invented some you know nonsense engine that could take you really really fast. But you really see them experience the, the G's when they when they speed up. I mean, they've got to pump their body full of drugs in order to keep awake. I mean, you you actually see them suffer this. Pulling a turn, it's like, do we have to make this turn? Oh, or, or can we survive this turn? <laughs> it, they really make you feel this matters. And then when they're coming to a planet, it's like, why are they why are they flying away from the planet? Oh, they're not. They're just slowing the descent to the planet. And they did such a great job with that. In And also, of course, with all the thrusters that actually move the ship around so that it can turn the ship so that the one engine can act in the opposite direction where you're going to actually slow it down. I think that the Expanse did a fantastic job of showing convincing space travel. Um, 
which I think we don't really ever see in these other space operas where, you know, the Enterprise looks like some fancy, glittery, streamlined, you know, flying saucer. And it's just not built as a spaceship would be built. You know, in Expanse, the ships are rugged, bolted on bits and pieces, wires, cables, blocks and squares, no streamline whatsoever. That's convincing. I felt that was really, so, really was a good way of doing so it. So in the Star Trek universe, at least specifically from what we've seen in the movies, I think that there is at least some contextual reason why, at least from an um, orientation point of view, the, the ships are built the way they are. Uh, it's because, at least from what we see in Star Trek, the 2007, just Star Trek, um, is that at least the original starships were built on the ground, which means that they were built in gravity. So there had to be floors, there had to be walkways, there had to be doorways. But you're right, had the ships been built in space, Doesn't matter. there would be no reason for any of that. Well, then the first ship would so, so be I, built a certain way, but all other ships after that... Right, in theory. Space. And there have been major talks from hardcore, more hardcore fans than me about how, like, you know, physically the ships could not be built on Earth because they would collapse or fall apart or the sheer weight. They would have to be built in space. Um, so for the original ships, I think there's, even within Star Wars canon, at least some reason. And maybe it's humanity clinging to humanity. Maybe that's mm. the real the real tell is that it's hum- humans insisting oh, that sure. there is an up and down. You've, all, you've always got the, uh, the 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 production reason why things are done, and then you've got to try and marry it with a in story in world reason why it's done. Right. That's, that's not always easy to do. You know, why is it this way? Because it's actually just a set. Uh, but why yeah. would it be this way? Uh, because we cling to humanity. You know, you, you've got to have. I think you've got to have an in world reason to accommodate for the um, in production reason. But I, I, I always felt that the um, the way. I mean, I'm sorry. Recently, I've been the way that ships move, the engines, the way they're designed. Not just designed, but the way they move, where they stuff speed up and slow down. It's just very clumsily done. Um, granted, that's not the focal point of the story. It's about all the adventures. I get it. I get it. I totally right. get it. But I, I liked how in Expanse they just spent a bit of time making you feel what these guys are feeling, and, and I thought that was, that was actually quite nicely done. Um, and and what what is warp? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, obviously, you know, for for obvious reasons, I can't tell you the secrets of warp, but no, no. the way you know the the way it's sort of said is that it creates a bubble around a the warp ship. envelope. It, yeah, it is. It's an envelope exactly. So, an object can somehow defy the laws of uh, physics in that universe that is inside that bubble. The bubble creates some sort of spatial rift that allows the ship to move faster than light. Uh, and uh, defy the laws of uh, gravity and physics, and uh, and, and that's why Into else. Darkness was such a big thing because they oh they can't get us we're in warp but then they they can discover the ability to to what was it beam through warp it was a big yeah. one in two thousand seven and then get attacked in warp in the two thousand nine one yeah exactly yeah absolutely um, speaking of defying all explanation uh, let's talk about uh, pick hard. Uh, not Picard, uh, the the ripped Jean-Luc Picard, who is going to face <laughs> down with the Borg Queen. Um, let's go to the for the final show. He is showdown. ripped, isn't he? Yes, for he for a man ripped. of his age. He used age, to be a boxer. Really? really? I didn't know that. So he's tra- yeah. he's a trained boxer. Well, now now that I want to see yes. that now I want to see that film. When I, I was researching this for our show, that's what I found. Oh wow! I did not know that. 
Um, I, now I want to see that. I want to see him literally punching the Borg uh, away. Just just keep them away. Well, um, he was just doing press-ups with one arm here. That's quite, yeah, exactly. <laughs> quite cool. Um, then, so the story becomes him seducing the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> the whole plot changes. Oh, my goodness. We flip it on its head. That's just Jean-Luc wearing muscle shirts, eating cheese. <laughs> For you, was there any tension in the final showdown? Did you think, hang on a minute, has Data turned? Did you think that at any point he was actually the bad guy? I, I liked how Picard asked him if he was ever tempted, and then he replied for 0.68 seconds for an android that's in an eternity. I did like that. That was probably my third favourite line of the entire film. Um, I liked that, but no, I mean, there, there was no real belief this is ever going to happen that way. I mean, it it wouldn't they'd never make a movie that way and so this is this is again this is the problem now again had this been the movie where data sacrifices himself for the good of humanity now that would be something you know where instead data... of in the sixth the movie which was a pile of shit <laughs> that's for seventh i don't know whichever that... one now it was real bad yep uh number seven eight nine ten uh yes oh he kills gosh. himself in number ten uh... Now, see, that would have been a good place, especially if, you know, the Borg has created its liaison. The Borg has created its voice in order to get data because somehow data has what is needed to conquer the universe. They've got to build a bit more than he's got a code. You know, they've got to build up a little bit more than that. So they've created this completely unstoppable embodiment of the Borg that can just take whatever it wants and data is the last line of defense and data cannot win and that's the point if data is stronger than the entire borg seriously i mean how what why why would one android be stronger than the entire borg so if it was data knows there is absolutely no beating the borg we, i can't i'm just a droid i can't do it so it's a simple, this is a Spock point, it's purely logical. There's only one way to win, to destroy myself so that they can't win. That would have been a much more interesting moral dilemma rather than, oh yeah, I was pretending to be on her side, but really all along, it was never really deadly. Like, come on, <laughs> I mean, chew the other one. I mean, it would have been a so much more satisfying if he destroys himself and takes the queen with him or takes her with him and that's it and that's how we resolve Worf kills the Borg and saves the Enterprise Data destroys a queen and saves humanity like the heroes of Star Trek have died and Picard who was ready to sacrifice everybody is left having lost everybody of their own free will choices not because of himself so he survives with survivor's guilt and suddenly he becomes Cochrane bam there you go that that's perfect that's a brilliant yeah <laughs> okay um anything to, further to say steve on that um no i agree like data giving himself would have been <clears throat> great and i think the opportunity for an echo to to wrath of khan would have been sitting there in that you know spock's ultimate acceptance of his humanity is the admittance that that his life isn't as important as everyone else's um and maybe that could have been the exact same arc here for data is that through this experience he finally reached humanity mm, yeah and he only got to experience in that last moment before he was gone true and that's that. enough that's enough for data excellent i don't know excellent well um the borg are defeated 
the crew come down ish. to Earth. Ish. Yeah, we're sort of finished <laughs> there for a little bit at least. Um, and I'm going to pause here at one hour, 36 minutes, nine seconds, as oh, a ship up. seems to be coming through the atmosphere. And I'm going to just quickly go over to Enterprise Season 4 uh, in a Mirror Darkly Part 1 at zero minutes and zero seconds when we see another Zephyrin Cochrane going up to the same Vulcans but this time he can't do the salute so he's just going to draw a shotgun and kill the Vulcan right in front of him uh, causing some weird oh hang on a minute no I've got uh, the alternate uh, dimension setting on my phone a minute I'm just going to come back to the uh, to the, the film there we go um, say, I'd watch that movie yes and it finishes at one minute 43 seconds in the Enterprise episode and we come back to first contact the movie at 1 hour 38 minutes 40 seconds. Um, did you happen to know that they revisited this in the series? That they actually came and used the footage from first contact and then used it in an episode of Enterprise to show how huh. the evil mirror universe got started? No, that's interesting. So uh, it's everything is played the same. There's a few extra edited in scenes where a few people in the background have got like machine guns in their hands, but you don't quite notice at first. And then all of a sudden, huh. um, uh, uh, Zephyr Cochran pulls out a shotgun, kills uh, the Vulcan in front of him, then holds it aloft above his head, and they all run into the Vulcan ship and take over. And that's apparently where the evil mirror universe begins. Um, it's hmm. it's a slightly it's a great little use of the footage because you see all the extras and it sort of looks like the movie but it, they've just changed it just slightly um, and they they reuse the footage basically. Um, oh, but brilliant. we're but we're actually talking about first contact. We'll come back to that uh, to that episode another time. I've um, just the, watched I, that clip as you've been discussing it. It's fun to watch, uh, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, it's it's a very clever use of the scene of of the of the you know the the, the the filming to just change that around. Is there a reasoning why he makes that decision? Is um, it just because in what, the, what if scenario in the mirror in the mirror universe everyone is an evil counterpart of who they are in our universe or in the Star Trek universe? Yeah, but surely if, if Cochrane was a more evil version of the Cochrane, then he would never got to that point in the first place. He would have. Uh, you know, uh, punched Riker in the face, gone off with Diana, and then that was that would surely be it. <laughs> Maybe he did. We didn't see the rest as of the movie. Well as, uh, as well as do the shit. What, what if an evil version of the Enterprise went back to stop these uh, peace-loving Borg who were trying to stop now, the uh, now first this contact is in the where evil the, mirror universe? This, this is where we get a little bit more philosophical um, because it depends on what we mean by evil. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about evil a little bit more selfish, that's one thing. But but a true evil doesn't create anything. A true evil merely corrupts and destroys what already exists. So an evil Cochrane would not be standing there in front of the, the Vulcans with a shotgun. A true evil Cochrane would be completely corrupted and destroyed until nothing was left of himself. That's what a truly evil Cochrane would have been. And that is the point. Evil doesn't create, it only, destroy, it only corrupts and destroys. So... That's, I, I suppose I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, you know, playing with terms here. I mean, it's, it's a more, a darker version of the history, um, which is, is very clever and, and quite, quite nasty, really. To I don't know. If what you're looking it, at evil as corruption, and destruction, I mean, think about the implications of them taking a unknown alien vessel with technology well outside of their realm. They wouldn't have adapted. They would have corrupted it. Oh yeah, for sure. But then, if their, their intentions was to go and dominate other alien species, they would have gone and destroyed. 
Maybe evil is the right word. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know if he would have got to that point though. I mean, if he was evil always from the beginning, I don't know if he would have got to that point. But I mean, I'm just, I'm just being True. He's playing with semantics at this point. I'm, I'm just doing it purely for the sake of the argument, <laughs> from an actual point of, of, of belief. But no, it was, it was a very nicely put together little scene. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Steve. I mean. The, the thought that if he'd actually been told by uh, by Riker, you know, you're going to be visited by by aliens who are going to come down, and his, his thinking with his like mm, with his long mustache, evil mind, oh, aliens coming down, eh? I can make Let's money. Get ready, that. boys. You know, forget forget you know retiring on an island with naked women. If I can get a spaceship of my own and have all this technology, the world is mine. I'll yeah, get absolutely. two statues. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a statue as big as the world. You know? Absolutely. I mean that that's uh, definitely what the kind of like uh, the more the more wicked version of uh, Paul Cochran would have done. The more selfish, the more uh, narcissistic um, version of himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally see that. Got it. You're absolutely right. But we come back into the movie uh, one hour, 38 minutes, 40 seconds uh, to the hopeful ending instead, the nice ending uh, for First Contact. Um, any thoughts on the ending? Do you feel it was too hopeful, too too nice? Was it too Star Trekky? Do you feel that uh, as it was a movie for a more general audience, perhaps there should have been a darker twist? It's hard to say that now because the the landscape of films has changed so much. We talked about this earlier with the Marvel changeover and people looking at seven, eight film contracts. You know, if this movie was done today, you know there would have been at least one or two post-credit scenes (laughs) that showed that the Borg was still alive or the Queen escaped or set up some bigger villain who was in charge of the Queen the whole time, the Borg King. (laughs) But no, we didn't get that because this was a different era of film. Yes. Movies were expected to have endings. Well done. Oh, the Borg King. Well, yeah, that's a bit of a sexist notion, isn't it? That the Queen is absurd. How about how about the Borg Consort? <laughs> I don't know. Borg, In original the Borg Trek, all of the females are secretaries, so that's it's not outside true. of the realm. My my co-host is like, no, they're ensigns. I'm like, yeah, but all they do is get Kirk coffee and stuff. What are you talking about? They're ensigns. Shut up. That's not the way they're being portrayed. I don't see any any of Picard's ensigns getting him coffee. I have to say, this is this is. I'm saying this with tongue in cheek here, and I'm not saying this out of any genuine, um, (laughs) you know, uh, sexist kind of intent here. But they finally give a woman captaincy of a ship, and she gets lost in the gamma quadrant. I mean, for crying out loud. Can you keep it together for an That's episode? <laughs> it's immediate too. I You're say right. that That's with tongue in cheek. You know, I, I, I don't really, I don't really feel so, that way. Uh, please send all um, hate I, mail to. Uh, I, <laughs> no, but I, I'll be honest. I did like. Um, it's almost like a like a the circles complete moment, really, with with um, Cochrane, where you know the Vulcan is there, does the whole Vulcan hand thing, and he can't do it, and so he emulates what. Geordie tells him the statue will show him reaching out the hand to, to the future. I did like that. It was quite a nice, nice poetic moment where he's he has at that point accepted what he is to history. He is the hand reaching out. And and that as a piece of art, that's very poetic. That's that's nice. That's that's beautifully done. Um, it, is it realistic? No, I mean, not in any way. I mean, how how is it the Vulcans can speak English? I mean, it's not right. realistic at all. Um, but I mean, surely that'll be the first thing that you would think is like, 
they can speak it. What, what's going on? Are they rushing there? <laughs> you know, I mean, you would genuinely have that panic and fear about you. Um, but for, for what it was, as, as a piece of sim- symbolism, it was lovely. It was, it was really nice. Um, and, uh, and and I like that there are instant timeline implications in that. I believe that the one who makes contact is Spock's grandfather. It is, yes. If uh, I remember correctly. Uh, so there are concrete implications for this moment. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it would um, set up everything. If they just called him uh, Solkar, who is Spock's uh, great-grandfather, um, it would have set up the whole arc for the Spock family. Just the idea that, of course, they were the first ones to meet the humans, so of course they're the ones who are most ingrained with the humans. They are the, the bridge between the Vulcan world and the human world. Um, and, and evidence that it only took, what, two generations for, for Vulcans and humans to start getting together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is the human way. Yeah, yeah. Very quick for androids and Borg, but uh, much, much longer for the humans. And the yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is kind of what you would expect, really. But, uh, <laughs> I have to say, I do, I do find, sorry, I, I do find that the whole communication thing to be something that is horrifically overlooked. And, and granted, you've got the Universal Translator, which comes into the Star Trek, which I think is done much, much smarter in Star Trek. That they, they just avoid the problem by inventing a, a is, the, is the word a MacGuffin? I'm not sure. By inventing a piece That's of, right, yeah. of plot device. This is the reason why we can do it, which I think a lot of other sci-fis don't even attempt to to deal with and or even address i mean i remember in, in stargate um like one of the first few episodes they go to a planet where everyone speaks mongolian um and they can't they have to get daniel daxon to communicate because he's a linguist okay that's quite clever by this third episode they're all speaking english <laughs> it's like we can't right. bother to keep this up <laughs> we're just gonna get everyone speaking english i mean how hard could it have been to, for like one of their first races to be advanced like, look why don't you use these these will help and uh, you know, i don't know star it. trek so, invented getting rid of problems with single lines of dialogue <laughs> like they pioneered that shit back in the 60s so if anyone deserves to do it it's them yeah absolutely. Like, why don't they all float around in space i don't know just inertial dampeners or something it doesn't matter yeah. Gravity why aren't they wearing seatbelts inertial dampeners we went over it why is it they're standing in a spaceship artificial gravity because it what? was built on the ground you, shut up just shut up yeah there's four feet force fields above them pushing them down or something just write it into the script it doesn't matter just go with it go I mean, with it that's it's all okay. it, it's, a, it's a space so, opera it's all right so, i mean you know star trek did it first so i think if anything they deserve it no no i i, I right I, away I, problems I with a single line that. dialogue I, I respect that but um i don't know i think they i think that the language barrier was done quite nicely actually in the movie now what was the movie called um it was uh the one with the septipods um uh district nine arrival 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 oh, was close. um no but the septipods the whole thing about the whole movie was about language communication and understanding and i thought that was done quite nicely I, I wasn't a particular fan of the whole time issues with it but what i loved was that they actually spent time to think well look if aliens come down the first problem is language that is it it'll be communication how i mean cracker i have difficulty trying to get to you know uh a, a train station in paris <laughs> trying to figure out where i'm going you know language is the biggest issue and i think um, in the movie arrival uh, she actually says to one of the scientists um do you know what kangaroo means it means what is that 
um, because the first thing uh, that uh, was said by the Aborigines is, is is what is that or whatever, and they thought that the word that Santa was using was kangaroo. That's what it was called, or, or whatever, something like along those lines. I thought hmm. that's actually, and it turns out she was making that up. But the point that she made was <laughs> that's the problem with language. You have no idea what they're saying. You have absolutely no idea. And I think they could do a better job with that in more sci-fi. I, I know there was an episode with Picard where he goes to a planet and they all speak in metaphor. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting. That was quite fun. But he when masters it. Fell. He masters it after 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, let's be completely frank about this. If you were meeting aliens, that would be generations generations of confusion um, before it can be overcome um and i, I think, think the confusion that... when an alien spaceship lands and then a bunch of white guys with pointy ears step out <laughs> do you think that's what they were expecting yeah think they were expecting a bunch of white guys to pop out <laughs> no that's not what they were expecting so I, I don't know i mean maybe there are episodes where they explore this further which would be really cool but um i think it's uh, it's not dealt with enough uh, i'm oh people who can understand alien languages just like they're you know your mate with an accent oh for crying out loud come on <laughs> that that winds me up and, and the worst bit is when one person can understand his other language but his mate has no idea what they're saying it's like look either you all understand it or no one does let's be consistent with this you know it's, that winds me up a little bit but uh, i suppose you know the universal translate is that implanted in their um, heads is- well uh, as we've seen in previous episodes uh, from this podcast uh, it depends on the alien uh, in Ferengis you get them implanted in your ear, uh, if you're a human for some reason you're carrying it, it's not actually inside your body and it, presumably with the Vulcans perhaps it's also I don't know, have you seen Ferengi ears? Oh yes, oh yeah, the there's Ferengi real estate for something yeah, there's there. lots of ears, not so much. Yeah. I think they'll put anything on their ears as long as it's glittery as long but, as it's shiny as we've seen before as well, this isn't actually the first contact with the Vulcans. Uh, they actually arrived on the planet back in the 1950s, so they've been studying us for quite some time. Uh, so maybe they just picked up the language uh, a bit earlier than we actually think they were. Maybe. Who knows? I do, I do uh, um, reserve my, my views on this whole... I mean, of course, this is sci-fi. Aliens, got it. Right, fine. Space magic, but, yeah. but, <laughs> Space magic. But, but I, I was having a think, I mean, I don't know. You've got... I don't know, since the Big Bang, what, you got, like, 14 billion years. And, okay, we, we've come close to killing ourselves a few times. And you, if you imagine how long we've been, you know, around on this planet, how long the planet's been here, how long we've actually been smart enough to actually think of anything, civilizations could have come and gone a million times over across the whole of the universe. And we've seen no sign of that on Earth. Anything's come here that we can trace to that. Again, time travel. You've got the whole of all of time where time travel could have been invented and we've never seen any indication of that here, ever, nothing. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? It just, just puts that point, surely, if there are all these races and all these time travelers and all these aliens, all this... I don't think they're too primitive would have stopped them from coming over here, <laughs> taking all of our ore, taking all of our resources. I think the whole they're too primitive, we're just going to wait for a while before we make first contact. No, look, look, there's not a chance. I don't think Christopher Columbus was was approaching the coast of the Americas thinking, no, they're too primitive to trade with them. Let's just, let's just wait for a while before we actually start coming over with our ships. 
I, I, I'm not convinced. <laughs> it's yeah, not really. Star Trek treats that consistently. Uh, because in at least one of the movies, I want to say the fifth or the sixth of the Next Generation ones, or maybe, I don't know, one of the late generation ones, you know, Picard is welcoming a new race to the Federation. Yes. And and they're celebrating that they just figured out warp. Mm-hmm. Like, that's still their litmus test. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it's even about technology. It's And if anything, maybe the humans tricked them. Uh, it's about a society that has enough concentration on science and little enough destruction that they're able to pull it off. I think that's the real litmus test. Well, I think that's very badly done for the Vulcans because it's just ten years off. Oh, the, the humans totally tricked them. The humans totally fooled them. Don't get me wrong. With time travel, clearly. <laughs> that's how they trick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even they come along later and they take over. They take over the, the whole movie. game. It's like, oh, now we're in charge of the Federation. It's like, what the? We thought of the word. No, but, but I mean, but even if that was how it was in, for example, the centralized government of of, inter, of intergalactic alliances, federation, whatever, that doesn't mean there are other aliens out there who are quite happy to go and dominate and explore, expand, exterminate, and uh, and all the rest. So it's, well, it's a very think... nice thought. That's that's the point where you rewrite history. It's very nice thought, but I don't know. It's... I think another direct implication of this this film, though, and I'm not sure if this is on topic based on how you're doing things, but this led this movie led to an Enterprise episode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they dig up Frozen Borg. Yes. That results in them being the ones that send the signal to the Delta Quadrant, bringing humans to the Borg's attention. Yeah. So. Even even through this act of saving the world, the Enterprise has accidentally instigated the exact incident that brought them to the Borg's attention. Yes. Yeah. But it all links in. You see, that, that's yeah. it. It's all there. That uh, that perfectly brings us on to uh, the, the next part of uh, the episode, or the podcast episode. Um, we've examined the movie and very thoroughly. Thank you so much, guys. This is fantastic. Yeah, for like two hours or something. I am looking forward to editing this. this is, I'm just going to sit back. I'm just going to press play and let it just upload. <laughs> just pick um, out the parts that make me sound smart. <laughs> oh, that's all of it. That's perfect. Um, uh, we've done the location. So we've looked at 2063 and what has happened in the movie. Next is continuity. Do we feel that if the Enterprise goes back to its timeline. Is it the same timeline, or has it changed? So, I, I think that, that you've touched on this uh, prior, is that it depends on what kind of timeline we think we're dealing with. Single timeline, or, or multiple. In single timeline, uh, in theory, everything they went back and did was what they did and was already factored into the timeline that they're in, so nothing changes. The Borg still got that call, which was resulted in the Enterprise episode, um, the people that are dead are still dead. That's all the same. Um, I think if we're talking about split timelines, though, then there's huge implications. Mm. You know, the and other guys that weren't in the conpict, Lily not being involved, um, them having to explain advanced technologies that somehow ended up in the Phoenix. Thing is, if you're if you're looking at time travel that appears in other Star Trek um, franchises, especially particularly in the movies, which actually mm. establishes. Um, split timelines and um, multiverse etc yeah absolutely it, it all depends on what kind of time travel you're dealing with as, as Steve has already said um, I am always a, I always prefer the single timeline model because with the split timeline model it for me it just makes 
one timeline expendable for the sake of another one, and it makes characters expendable and stakes and consequences. Re- yeah. yeah, stakes and consequences doesn't matter. With a single timeline, everything matters. Everything you do matters. Um, and so, but I don't think Star Trek. Well, they don't look. If you look at the uh, the movies, they they don't work on that model. So, I don't know how it works in other Star Trek episodes. I, um, I think in a single timeline, we would come back to like Zephyr Cochran was the brilliant inventor who committed suicide two years after this due to immense survivor's guilt, uh, we would end up with technology ahead of where it is now because there would be future technology in the Phoenix that would have put them years ahead of where they are now. I think there'd be... We're talking huge implications if we're talking single timeline. Huge. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Alterations. Now, that's our next category. Uh, is, Is there anything that you would have seen or would have liked to have seen changed or perhaps expanded on throughout any parts of this movie. I think we've, we've covered that in yeah. regards to Cochrane making this more about his psychological journey, also like the idea of the Survivor's Guild, exploring that more, the hero worship character, um, making this more about him becoming and accepting who he will become um, and accepting the, the burden of being the survivor. Um, and also... Maybe- putting Borg down on the planet to drive the plot yeah, down there absolutely. with a little bit more heat uh, um, than it did um, and what that could have brought and how that could have driven maybe the horror aspect a little bit more heavily and also given thematically. Co- Cochrane more of a reason to want to back out of it because it's not what he signed up for um, but then also possibly killing off a main character Data or Wolf two very yeah. good places where that could have happened and again the gravitas of Wolf dying and then the last things that Pocard would have said to him maybe having that argument before they go out and oh, then he yeah. never got a chance to actually tell him he was sorry and wow then Picard's carrying a heck of a lot of burden on his shoulders Oh yeah. and then with Data and uh, you know Again, the idea that Data saves humanity by being more human than Picard. Picard's not willing to sacrifice himself to kill the Borg, but Data is. Like, wow, Picard's got a lot to deal with in the next next And then add in the thematic element of Picard finally agreeing that the Borg are right. Like, Data accepting humanity and and Picard accepting the Borg be what saved them. Mm. Nice. Ultimately. Excellent. Yeah, that's perfect. Bam. That's perfect. Tie that up. Last, yep. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, last, last things. Recommendations. Um, do you think that this movie is an essential part of Star Trek for Star Trek fans? First of all, do you feel that we have to watch this? Do you feel like actually you don't really need this movie? You could just stick to the TV shows. I, I think that because of the role that Borg play throughout Star Trek, not only this, but other shows, and even the direct implications that we talked about this movie and other parts in Enterprise and so on. Um, to, to talk about Star Trek without the Borg is to to talk about to not talk about a lot of Star Trek. You know, we're not just talking about this movie. I think we're talking about then, you know, 14 or 15 episodes spread across four or five shows, mm-hmm. realistically. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely pertinent and is a key part of the Borg storyline. For better or for worse, because then Voyager did some real goofy stuff with the Borg, and then more recently Picard has taken it to a different level. Um, so I think... To, to cut it would be in, insane. I think it's absolutely pertinent, especially with Picard now. Perfect. Yes, the TV show. For for the casual viewer, I think there's enough in it standalone to make it an enjoyable sci-fi action movie. Um, there are certain things which, if you if you're not familiar with Star Trek, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Like 
why Picard was assimilated and then not assimilated again. What's going on with that? Mm. Um, why are the Borg suddenly a threat and suddenly not that scary and suddenly scary again? Unless you really know about the Borg, it would make sense. I think the, in, the insertion of the Borg Queen is there for the casual viewer. I mean, yep. I think if for a, for a, you know a diehard trekker, I think they would have got that movie without the Borg Queen, and it would have made more sense to them. Inventing her is for the casual viewer who doesn't quite get what the Borg are. Um, so it's been made to try and bridge the gap between the casual and the the more um, diehard fan. Um, but yeah, it's enjoyable enough to watch. You get a good bit of Picard in this. Um, I I think you're you're meant to care a lot about the implication of this moment more than you can care about it if you don't invest at all in Star Trek. I mean, if you don't care at all about it, you're going to watch a movie then in a cinema, then you know why does it matter? It doesn't work by itself too well. But if you know something about the card, you know something about the Enterprise, you kind of know who the Borg are, then yeah, this this absolutely works. And I was definitely in that camp when I watched it the first time. Um, but for some, put it this way: if you've never watched an episode of Star Trek before, this wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. But the J.J. Abrams Star Trek would work. Because that was made for the completely cold, uninitiated. Um, and that's why I think so many Trek fans didn't like it, because it was too much of a breakaway of the legacy. Um, so, so if anything, can't... the amount of Borg is what ruined it. <laughs> like, the, there's too much Borg in the Star Trek universe for it to stand alone. Interesting. As opposed to Akan, which only showed up in, in one episode. Yeah, interesting. Oh, I like that. Excellent. Um, hmm. Are there any other points you want to bring up before we leave? Um, uh, a couple of things I wanted to just uh, point out. I loved Lily's um, response to the Borg, where, where Picard says the Borg, and she says, "Sounds it's Swedish." Swedish? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, the idea about money not existing in the 24th century, oh, find it hard to believe that anybody would be motivated to do anything if there wasn't some sort of um, individual payoff. So I'd like to see how that works. It sounds I, very, it sounds very sci-fi socialist. I, I, I'm not making any money on this podcast. Just to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, neither are we. It sounds, it does sound very sci-fi socialist. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Um, and the the last point is where um, Data um, has learned how to lie to the Borg and maybe think of Red Dwarf and Lisa teaching Crichton how to lie. Um, <laughs> I think uh, he did a great job with that. But, uh, but that's perfect. That, 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 that's, that's great points. I can edit all that in and put it all in the right place. Um, so the last thing for me uh, to do on this episode is not only to thank you guys but apologise for the amount of time I have just taken up uh, in your lives uh, talking about this movie Uh, but uh, join me next time as we leave the 21st century and head straight into the 22nd century as I start to finally watch the seasons as whole episodes I don't have to do scenes anymore I've got two little tiny scenes to do first 
and then I'm straight into Enterprise and it is a full Enterprise watch. So thank you again to both uh, Steve and to Andy uh, for being my guests on this episode. But join me next time as I enter the 22nd century and we go to Star Trek Enterprise. And I will see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail. Or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream. Anti-Kronsons are clearing. Captain, Temporal Loop Shift appears to have been dissipated. Ensign Hitch was able to use that device to correct the issue and he has begun the therapy himself and the chronoton particles are completely gone. Our patient is 100% fit to return to duty. Sir, I'm reading that we are an hour back in our journey. Excellent. We arrive at Earth within the hour. I trust we will have no more temporal causality loops. No, sir. All correct. Ensign's absolute final personal log before my promotion. The anti-chronoton experiment failed. It would seem that I'm stuck with this device for now. However, that might not be all bad, as the device has caught the attention of both Starfleet and Temporal Investigations. They've still given me the promotion, they're still giving me the new desk job, but it seems like I'm going to have some new duties too. I'm grateful to the crew of the Pathfinder for rescuing me. Thank you to Captain Paul Wright, to Dr. Vandaloo, Engineer Deering, and Councillor Froud, as well as to the two guests from the 21st century, Steve Bauman and Adi Capone. And getting back to life on Earth, it's changed very little in the six years that I've been absent, but I'm really looking forward to resuming some sort of routine duties, getting back to normality being just one of the infinite combinations in this universe. Thinks up all my audio, and that's excellent. Was I Cheers. supposed to clap? No, I wasn't no, no that's all right. No worries. It's just a clap because I've got uh, I've got the Skype recorder going, and I've got Audacity, got so I can link the two uh, bits of audio up. And Audacity seems to pick me up better than it does on the Skype got recorder. So German and I always try to do a clap thing. It just never works right. <laughs> just never quite hits. But no, thank you guys. That that, that was fantastic. Absolutely. So much to go through for that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of content. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is great. Hey, out. I don't mind. Uh, the original thing is to to air it for Halloween this year. So that will be the day where this actually gets aired. So this is the this is the Halloween episode. This is the Halloween episode. This is how far out oh, I am. Oh man, I've, I've got five. If more I had known that, we would, I would have talked more about the horror aspect. Ah, uh, don't worry. It's right, it right. sort of leads up to it, so don't worry. We'll we'll uh, we'll play into that. I'll Wasn't Sean supposed to be here? Sean was supposed. To, uh, he sent his oh, okay. apologies. Uh, he couldn't okay. make it. 
he's on a, a six month uh, anniversary uh, with his girlfriend and, uh, uh, yeah, when place... he wasn't here and you guys were already started I was like oh my god I'm late nice. what did I do <laughs> no that's absolutely fine that's alright um, the way we we structure it it's such a loose for, informal conversation that yeah. when people come in it's absolutely fine it's all perfect okay so. cool wonderful thank you so much i release you um uh, thank you very so much but um if you ever want to be a guest again on future episodes let me know and i'll, I'll be sending out a spreadsheet with time tables and things like that when i'm actually looking to record and everything um, yeah, if, okay. if it's uh, it'll be easier for me if it's either a movie yeah one that you do or i could possibly um, throw in a few ideas if it's a voyager because i've seen more voyager than anything else so that would probably be an area as, as you get to right. original series i'm now getting acquainted with that so i'll be in a better perfect. spot perfect well uh so i'll see steve in about uh four years time and i'll see okay, you fair, fair. Uh, andy in about 16 years time uh by the time yeah, i get cool. around I'll, to voyager i'll tell you what i'll just put a note in my, uh, in my calendar <laughs> That's what Jarman and I talk about Muppet Trek. He's like, well, what, what do we do when we run out of original series? I'm like, Jarman, we can talk about that in three and a half years. <laughs> Just three and a half years we can have this freaking conversation. There'll, there'll be tons more Muppet uh, shows to do. You know, you've got Muppet Babies and you've got the animated Star Trek. You can well, here's the issue, though. Well, there's like, what, two new Star Trek? Trek animated shows coming out, maybe uh-huh. three. There's gonna Star Trek already outnumbers Muppets. It's gonna get really bad. We're gonna really struggle to find Jim Henson stuff to do. Although, uh, I mean, if you're including things like, you know, the uh, the Dark Crystal universe or anything like that. Yeah, Dark Crystal, Dinosaurs. Uh, we'll try to include Jim Henson Hour if we can, though it's really hard to find. So it's hard for me to tell our viewers that we're going to review something that they, they probably can't get their hands on feasibly. <laughs> um, but Lord knows, by the end, we'll be doing Pajanimals and the Bear in the Big Blue House, for God's sake. We'll be, we'll be so desperate for Jim oh, Henson I'm content. So, I'm so down for Bear in the Big Blue House. I, we watched all of those when my first kid was born. Okay. That's when it was high. So, yeah, by all means. <laughs> uh, but who knows? Maybe we'll get a few more seasons of Dark Crystal before we get to that. So. Excellent. Excellent. We'll see. Uh, just so that you know, Dan, I have actually put it in my calendar for 2036. Uh, first of all, it is there. Just we have a call on this. So. That's time travel right there. Not another time. Yes, exactly. Show me this in 16 years, and uh... <laughs> the spreadsheet is huge. Don't worry. Uh, I checked. I have something that day. Oh, unfortunately, unfortunately, Isn't I got doctor's appointment. Always the way. Always yeah. the way. Right. Well, uh, all right. thank you so if much. You, uh, if and... you decide to go down any other um, sci-fi routes as well, do let me know. Oh, don't worry. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be something. All right. Gentlemen, have a good rest of your day. Uh, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's, 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 well. it's night time for us. It's, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Have, have, so have sorry. a good whatever's left. <laughs> <laughs> right. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. See you later, guys. <laughs>